Linnaean. Linnaean. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Linnaean Society of London. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 My name is Navroz Dubash. I'm a professor at the Center for Policy Research, which is a research institution in New Delhi, India. Uh, and I coordinate a group that looks at climate change, energy, air pollution, and we work both at the domestic level in India as well as globally. And among the things I do globally, I am part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Thanks, Navroz, and welcome to our podcast. But before we move on, could you briefly explain to us what climate justice actually is? So climate justice uh, as a concept really goes back to the fact that uh, different countries and different people within countries have different responsibility for causing climate change. Uh, so countries that have industrialized earlier have also been emitting emissions uh, for longer. And what matters in climate change and what matters to climate impacts is the total stock of emissions that accumulates in the atmosphere. So countries that have been emitting for longer uh, and at higher levels have a larger share of responsibility for what is currently in the atmosphere and therefore uh, for the amount of warming. Uh, so really the climate justice question uh, essentially says, look, some countries have more responsibility uh, for warming and some people within those countries, the wealthier people, and yet the poorer, those who have had less responsibility are less able to adapt and will be hurt more. Uh, so that kind of disparity between who's responsible and who gets hurt more is kind of the core of the climate justice issue. So what really is net zero? So the idea of net zero emissions essentially is to try and convey in a simple way where we want to go globally. And that is that the, uh, the sum of the emissions that we collectively emit and the amount that the earth absorbs or the biosphere absorbs plus any kind of additional absorption we can create, that those two things end up at zero, right? That the sum of those is, is zero. In other words, we're not... Um, we're not digging our hole any deeper. We've already dug a deep hole. At minimum, we should stop digging, uh, uh, digging it deeper. It doesn't mean that warming will stop immediately, but it does mean that we will stop making the problem, uh, problem worse, right? The scientists basically have said, if we want to have a chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees or less, we should be aiming for net zero uh, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. Within this target or goal, how is it impacting wealthier versus poorer nations? And are there winners and losers? Where is the fairness, or the idea of fairness in net zero? So this goal goes back to the Paris Agreement, um, where there was a, a call in the Paris Agreement to have the balance of, of emissions and sinks for these to be in balance by the second half of the century. The IPCC in its 1.5 report put this 2050 number uh, on it. And there wasn't much discussion then immediately as to what that implied for what countries should do. And because of the climate justice conversation we were talking about earlier, there's long been a sense or there's long been a principle in international climate law, uh, which says that while we have common responsibilities across country, they're also differentiated uh, based on your capability, based on your responsibility and, and so on and so forth. So the application of that idea of differentiated responsibility to net zero is only just beginning. So a lot of people basically said, well, look, if we have to reach net zero by 2050, doesn't that mean that every country has to reach net zero by 2050? And the problem with that thinking 
is that some countries, and including the country that I'm from, which is India, uh, our emissions are still rising and will probably rise for a while. Uh, so per person, India emits on the order of two tons per person, uh, while the US emits on the order of you know, closer to 12 or 13 tons uh, per person. So the amount of energy that the average Indian uses is much less. And so energy needs are greater. At the moment, energy is tied to carbon. And so carbon needs uh, are greater. And so for a country like India to get to zero, when we are still on the upslope, as it were, means much more dramatic changes in economy and society than for a country where emissions have already peaked and are already on the downslope. So then the question becomes, all right, maybe some countries need to get to net zero earlier so that other countries can get to net zero later. But that takes you right back into a question of, well, how much earlier and how much later? In this concept of fair shares from your research, how do we action this in, a, in an equal way? And what do you actually think is a fair way to move forward? So, you know, there's been a, a cottage industry for a decade or more, two decades, really, on trying to divide up the carbon pie, as it were. Uh, and it's, it's actually um, almost amusing in that there are as many ways of dividing up the pie, at least as there are countries. And, and, and the, 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 the kind of proposals that come out of uh, different countries, surprise, surprise, make that country look like they should get a larger share of the pie. Uh, and this is not because countries are duplicitous there, it is just a very complicated way of doing things. And the, and the, 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 the proposals vary across government think tanks, NGOs, civil society, and many organizations have tried to kind of put together composite indices. So the simplest way of thinking about it might be, well, every person uh, on the planet is equal. Give everybody existing today uh, an equal entitlement to the amount of, um, uh, of uh, emissions that we are allowed. Well, then the question becomes, well, what about people who are yet to be born? What about countries with higher population growth rates and so on and so forth? Um, uh, and also, if you do it that way, you find that many wealthier countries, notably the US, but much of Europe, would actually have already used up its emissions share. So does that mean that they go to zero tomorrow? Do they compensate poorer countries uh, in terms of money in order to continue emitting? These are things that are seen as politically uh, infeasible. So then people say, well, all right, let's try and find a softer landing. Let's try and find other forms of transition. And so all kinds of formulae keep getting developed. And the bottom line is this, you will never find a formula for dividing up the carbon share that everybody will agree to politically. So that sort of allocation story uh, is, is, is not going to be the basis for a global agreement. But in a post-Paris world where every country puts on the table what it thinks it is willing to do, the game in town now is what is the benchmark by which those NDCs or nationally determined contributions should be judged? How do we decide if they're fair or not fair? And so you have, again, a plethora of, 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 of ways of, of measuring this. It's actually quite interesting. Very recently, the Carbon Action Tracker, I'm sorry, the Climate Action Tracker, which is one of the leading such uh, producers of these indexes. Um, the last time they produced something like this, uh, India was deemed to be sufficient in its actions. Well, they just updated it, and now India is highly insufficient. Um, and nothing really has changed. It just shows how difficult it is to be consistent with metrics uh, of this sort because they started computing things uh, things differently. Can we not agree on how to share the wealth around so that we can all get there, that is net zero together? 
So if, if we can't all collectively agree to what fairness means when we're allocating the carbon pie, the Paris Agreement's answer was, let's all try and move as fast as we can towards decarbonization. And then hopefully the dynamic will shift and countries won't want to emit carbon because they will see a competitive advantage in building a low carbon economy. In other words, the reason you want to have a share of the carbon pie is because, and you know, nobody wants carbon, but they want energy and they want cheap energy. Well, what if the cheaper energy was low carbon energy? And that is actually coming to pass. Renewable energy is now cheaper than coal in many parts of the world, right? And of course, you use other forms of energy for other things, but electricity is a big piece of the, of the puzzle. So then the question becomes, well, maybe we shouldn't worry so much about fair share. And I think that the fact that the price of renewable energy has dropped so much has actually provided a partial way out of that debate, but not a complete way out. Because for a large, for economies to turn around and reorient themselves around renewable energy is a decade, two decades, maybe three decade long process. And that transition will take time. And in that transition, most countries will want to reserve the right to go back to fossil fuels as and when they feel it's necessary. So maybe we need to rethink about the rethink this equity and fair share conversation and say, well, it's not necessarily that we have an absolute right to emit a certain amount of carbon, but poorer countries where this transition may take a bit longer because they may not have the capital investment, they may not have the technology, they typically have more complex and um, uh, sort of impacted governance systems, maybe they need to be able to have first claim on a shrinking carbon pie, but it need not be an absolute claim. So in other words, we should use the carbon to allow people to transition at their pace where poorer countries maybe get a slightly more, uh, 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 more benefit from that option of using carbon. So it's a more nuanced view of the equity story. And I think that's where we're, that's where we're headed. Is this where we are heading? Are we heading towards a global transition strategy or individual strategy for countries that we are just hoping will come together at some point? We, we, we've talked a lot about in the past about the differences between North and South in climate politics. Mm -hmm. And with the Paris Agreement saying, look, everybody needs to come up with its own nationally determined con contribution, those North-South conversations have kind of died down a bit. But I think there's an important reason why the conditions are a little bit different in developed and developing countries. I think in richer countries, as I was saying earlier, that have already peaked their emissions, the task is to chart a course towards getting to net zero. G given that infrastructure is already built, given that manufacturing and lifestyle patterns are already set and urbanization has largely happened, how do you manipulate your social and economic systems to drive down to net zero, right? In the developing world, you're in a different position. Emissions are still growing. Infrastructure is still being built. There are many people working in the countryside who are yet to move to the cities as happens in most countries in the course of development. You have a demographic uh, uh, um, uh, 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 process going on where the population is growing. You have to find more and more jobs for those people. These are countries where the economy and society is, ch is changing very rapidly. In those countries, the task is not to reduce yet because you're still growing. The task is to develop with as little carbon as possible. 
which is in other words, to try and avoid locking into a high carbon future and lock into a low carbon future. So it's a different kind of question that the developing world faces. Put it this way, if India were to do in the next 10 years, what China did in the last 10 years, we would end up with huge amounts of surplus coal-fired power plants. But at this stage, India is in a position to not build more coal, but actually build more renewables. And that's the kind of pivot that the developing world has to take on. So emissions may rise, but they have to rise at a much, much slower pace than they otherwise would have. And that's where the international cooperation part comes in. That's where the finance, the technology uh, from the developed world becomes really important because it's in everybody's interest that that development happens in the most low carbon way possible. Navroz, I get the feeling that you are positive for the possibilities for countries like India. Do you think that this pivot you're talking about could weigh uh, out the balances in regards to the development of India? I mean, in relation to other nations? Historically, humanity and development has been a process of co-evolution with hydrocarbons, with fossil fuels. We are talking about breaking a set of relationships between societies, the institutions we build uh, that have evolved around oil, coal, and gas. We're talking about breaking that apart. And renewable energy is fundamentally a different sort of technology to big coal-fired power plants. But the fact that renewable energy is now so much cheaper means there's an opening, means there's something for us to work towards, something for us to plan around. So in India, the task of making that transition is incredibly complicated because huge parts of the economy are tied up with that fossil fuel energy. The banking system is over-leveraged with all coal-fired power plants. The railways are cross-subsidized by coal freight. We have these distribution companies that are dependent on these coal-fired stations and they're kind of locked into them in ways that it's hard for renewable energy to shake, uh, uh, to, to break into that, that relationship. So this is not just adopting a technology, it's changing a whole political and economic and institutional system. So that's not easy to do, but at least we know what we have to do now, right? And so in India, conversation has started around this, I think in other parts of the world as well. So I actually see the, the, the task at hand being sector by sector transitions. How do you decarbonize electricity? How do you build low carbon cities? How do you build transport networks that are not road-based or public transport networks that also allow for mo mo mobility through walking and cycling? So these are kinds of visions of the future that, that are coming into focus now. Um, it's going to be very hard to implement all these, uh, but I think we have a clearer sense of where we can go than we had maybe even five or ten years ago. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Future.